Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. And this morning I promise that I will preach about Jesus and the significance of Christmas. However, I'm going to start way back in the Old Testament by exploring Old Covenant laws about ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And so we're going to get there in a roundabout way. But the reason that we're starting way back there is because the three verses that I just read to you in Luke 2, 21 to 24, describe a scene in which Mary offers a sacrifice for ceremonial purification. And so when we understand the meaning of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness in the Old Testament, it will give us a better understanding of what is going on here in Luke 2, which we just read. And then we will better understand the significance of Jesus and of Christmas more deeply in light of these few verses here in Luke 2, which would be, frankly, quite easy to skim over if we didn't have an understanding of such things. In fact, how many of you remember these verses where Mary goes to the temple to offer a sacrifice for her purification according to what is written in the law, two turtle doves or two pigeons, right? Probably you have skimmed over it. So in order to get something out of that and not skim over it, we've got to start way back and give some old Testament background to it. So my prayer is that the Lord Jesus and his work will become much more rich and sweet to us by means of such a study this morning. And with that in mind, let's hit rewind and go from Luke 2 all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I will begin to show you, listen, the geographical layout of blessedness, cursedness, and redemption. Or, if I can put it this way, the map. The map of blessedness, cursedness, and redemption. We are familiar, if we have spent any time around the Bible and around church, we're familiar with the idea that Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were placed in the Garden of Eden. They inhabited the Garden of Eden in the beginning. And it was the place of God's special presence. Though God is omnipresent, which means that He is present everywhere, God was present to Adam and Eve in a special way in the Garden of Eden. We're told that God walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, it says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the very fact that they heard a sound and they knew that it was the Lord walking in the garden means that they recognized the sound, which means that it had happened before. And so they were accustomed to God walking with them in the cool of the day. It was habitual and customary for God to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and spend time in a special way with Adam and Eve there in the garden, though of course he was, in a, in a very real sense, present everywhere in the Garden of Eden and outside the Garden of Eden. So, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the Garden. And the implication is not merely that they no longer had access to the ecosystem of Eden, with all its plants and, and the beautiful vistas, perhaps, that they were able to see in the fertile soil and whatnot. But also, in addition to that, 
It means that they were cast out of the special presence of God. No longer would God visit Adam and Eve in the pool of the day, walking with them, being among them. No longer would the dwelling place of God be with man. No longer would God be their God and they be his people in the sense and in the manner in which they had been prior to the fall into sin. All of these things were disrupted. Sin put a physical separation between God and man in addition to what we are familiar with talking about, the spiritual separation. There was a very real sense in which God and Adam and Eve, and by extension mankind, were no longer in the same place. God would no longer be present with his people in the same way as he had been prior to the fall. Now which direction on a compass were Adam and Eve sent from the Garden of Eden? We should note that Adam and Eve were sent east out of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, 24, there are 23 and 24. It says, The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword. So the entrance back into Eden was at the east of the Garden, which means that Adam and Eve would have hypothetically had to travel west if they were to re-enter the place of God's special presence and enjoy again the free and full communion with God that they had enjoyed prior to their rebellion against Him. Now, fast forward in your minds many years to when God gives the tabernacle system of worship to the Old Covenant people of Israel. The book of Exodus teaches us that the entrance to the tabernacle was on the east side of the tent. And that the most holy place was the westernmost room within the tabernacle. What we should observe for our purposes this morning is that the whole system of tabernacle worship was an object lesson. Like when you teach young children and you get out strings and you, you pull them this way and that way. Or you get out Play-Doh and you, you shape something in order to help them understand they are teaching tools, object lessons. The whole tabernacle system was an object lesson teaching us, humans, that though we presently dwell to the east of God's special presence because of our sin, God has made provision for His people through the means of appointed sacrifices, God has made provision for his people to come through the doorway, which is at the east, and to move westward again, back towards the place of God's special presence. <coughs> Movement eastward in the Bible represents being removed from God's special presence, being cast out of the Garden of Eden being outside of the tabernacle or outside of the temple and movement westward 
would be going back into the Garden of Eden. Movement westward would be going into the tabernacle. And if you keep going westward, when you come into the tabernacle, you go into the holy place and finally the most holy place, which would be the epicenter of God's special presence on earth. Now this west and east thing, this is the case with Eden. This is the case with the tabernacle, which was essentially the temporary temple, which was a tent in the wilderness until the physical permanent structure was built when Israel came to possess the land of Canaan. This was the case with that permanent temple too. This was the case after that was demolished and a second temple was built. This was the case then with Eden, the tabernacle, the first temple, the second temple. And this is the case in Ezekiel's vision of a new temple which represents new covenant realities. This is the case all throughout scripture. That God's special presence, we have been cast eastward from God's special presence. But the old covenant system of worship was designed as an object lesson to teach us that we're not banished to the east away from God's special presence forever, but through the appointed sacrifices that God gives us, we may actually come west again back into his special presence. However, the old co covenant system of worship teaches us that there are two particular aspects of mankind's fallenness that need to be addressed if God's people are going to move westward into God's special presence again. One is very familiar to us. Sin. Right? We're used to this. Guilt. You've heard it before. If you've read the Bible at all, if you've ever been in a Christian church, if you've ever talked to a Christian, you know about sin. You know about guilt. We know that we need to have our guilt addressed. Our sin needs to be atoned for if we are to go back into God's presence, as it were. And so, in this tabernacle system of worship, there were sacrifices for sin, so that that aspect of our fallenness could be addressed and we could be forgiven, that's the right word to connect to the concept of guilt, forgiven of our guilt and welcomed back westward. However, the tabernacle system of worship gives us also another aspect of fallenness that needs to be addressed. For those of you who are more familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, if I were to say sin and holiness are one pairing of legislation, what would you say would be another really, really huge one? I'll give you a second. Call it out if you want, otherwise I'll give it to you. How about this? Clean and unclean. Right? If you've read through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you've come across not only sin and holiness a, a myriad of times, but you've also come across cleanness and uncleanness a whole bunch of times. And this is a lot less well understood. But what Mary is doing is not, in, in our passage in Luke 2, she's not going into the temple to get rid of the guilt attached to the sin of giving birth to a baby. After all, that's not a sin, is it? What she is doing is she's going and making an offering for ceremonial cleanness. What does that mean? 
Well, that's why we're going back and reviewing all this stuff, so that we can understand what's happening in Luke 2, as Mary goes into the temple to present a uh, sacrifice for her ceremonial cleansing. So, so I hope you can see we're going somewhere, so stay with me, all right? Mankind needs to be forgiven of the guilt of sin. And mankind needs to be healed from the effects of sin. There is a sense in which we are perpetrators, and there is a sense in which we are victims. There is a sense in which we are guilty, and there is a sense in which we are broken. Now it is important for me to stress that the Old Covenant couldn't actually accomplish the forgiveness of our sins, nor could it fix our brokenness and heal us from the effects of sin. But that system, as an object lesson, did teach us that these things needed to be accomplished, and it also taught us that God has made provision for these things to be accomplished. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So all of those sacrifices never got rid of sin. But they taught the people of Israel, and they teach us as we read the Old Testament scriptures, that sin needs to be forgiven. That blood needs to be shed, and that a substitute needs to die in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve, if sin is to be forgiven. So again, we're talking about an object lesson here in the Old Testament, right? Now, as is the case with guilt, forgiveness, so is the case with being healed being fixed, being restored. Just as the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, neither can bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves and pigeons make us whole again. But there were sacrifices for these things to instruct us that we needed to be made whole again and that God has made provision for us to be made whole again. This is what is symbolized by the sacrifices for ceremonial cleansing. We are familiar with the concept of needing to be forgiven. And forgiven. I saw you guys fidgeting with the sound system and I'm seeing that this microphone is off. <laughs> we might need to turn it down a little bit. Right? We're familiar with the concept of needing to be forgiven on the basis of a sacrifice by the blood of a lamb slain for us. Right? All of those lambs slain in Old Testament times represented and prefigured and foreshadowed Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we understand that Jesus is the sacrifice that we need in order to be forgiven 
by God for our sins and having that particular issue dealt with so that we can get back westward into his special presence. But what do the clean and unclean laws in the Old Testament mean? What do they represent? What are the corresponding new covenant realities? Some people say that clean and unclean in the Old Testament simply represent sin and holiness. But this is not correct. After all, there are many things which in the Old Testament would make you ceremonially unclean which are not sin. For example, giving birth to a baby, like Jesus, which made Mary ceremonially unclean. And the Old Covenant already had categories for sin and not sin. So there's no need then to make another additional category of clean and unclean if they represent the same thing. I preached on this at greater length in our Old Covenant series, and all of our sermons are available online at crbcbarbados.com. So you can go back and listen if you're interested in a fuller explanation. But to make a long story short for our purposes this morning, the clean and unclean laws had to deal had to do with the effects of sin. So westward, in God's special presence, symbolized by the tabernacle and symbolized by the most holy place, no obvious effects of sin were to be seen or found. Thus, Leviticus 21 tells us that no one could serve as a priest in that Old Covenant tabernacle system who had a deformity of any sort or a disability of any sort. In fact, even if you needed glasses, you couldn't serve as a priest. If you had an injury, you couldn't serve as a priest. Now, are these things sin? No, obviously not, plainly not. But these things are part and parcel of our lot in life in this fallen world for the very reason that it is a fallen world. I'm not saying that someone, if someone has a disability, it's because they sin. Of course not. That's way too simplistic and that's not the case. But disabilities and deformities and injuries and so forth would not be part of our experience if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the beginning and brought a curse upon this world. And so, therefore, since these things are reminders of and symptoms of the effects of sin, the fact that we are fallen, the fact that we are under a curse, they were not to be seen or found in the westernmost area of the tabernacle, the most holy place, which was the place of God's special presence. Remember, it's an object lesson. The whole tabernacle system is an object lesson. So it is teaching us that being close to dead bodies and blood and tears and injuries and deformities and disabilities and so on and so forth, that is part of the experience of being east of God's special presence outside God's special presence, east of the tabernacle, east of Eden, if you will. In God's presence, there is no death. 
There is no blood. There is no, there are no tears. There are no deformities. There is no disease. There are no injuries. It was an object lesson to show us, to highlight the contrast between our experience of fallenness east of God's special presence and the experience of healing and wholeness in God's special presence. This is what the clean and the unclean laws and regulations symbolize in the Old Testament. So with that background information in mind, we finally now come to our sermon text this morning in Luke chapter 2, in which two things are important to observe. First, Mary is offering the appointed sacrifice for being pronounced ceremonially clean after giving birth to Jesus. Now, why was she unclean? Because she sinned? No. There's nothing sinful about giving birth to a baby. But at childbirth, she bled. And she lost strength and vitality. And she came to experience depletion, deficiency, weakness. This is not sin, but this is part and parcel of life, which is less than full vitality and full wholeness and full healing and full strength in the special presence of God. No one would bleed or lose strength if Adam had not sinned. But because Adam sinned, since Adam sinned, we would bleed and become weak during childbirth and as a result of childbirth, so that bleeding and weakness are symptoms of life in a fallen world and remind us that we are east of Eden, east, away from God's special presence, not in the most holy place. And therefore, childbirth rendered a woman ceremonially unclean. So Mary herself, the mother of Jesus, became ceremonially unclean by virtue of giving birth to Jesus. At the appointed time, which was a standard period of time, which assumed a woman would have healed up and regained strength by then, she presented herself at the temple with the appointed sacrifice in order to be pronounced ceremonially clean and be admitted westward back into the temple precincts, which symbolized the special presence of God. This ceremony, and ceremonies like this, all of the ceremonies which the Old Testament calls these cleansing ceremonies, all of these things prefigure mankind's rescue from the effects of sin. When as Revelation 21 says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And because we are forgiven and ceremonially clean, free from the guilt of sin, as well as from the effects and symptoms of sin, the dwelling place of God is with men. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is what the cleansing rituals of the Old Testament taught us about and prefigured and foreshadowed. Getting free from death. 
getting free from blood, getting free from depletion of strength, getting free from tears, being healed, being made whole again, being full of life and vibrancy and returning westward, as it were, back into God's special presence. The old covenant system of worship, this tabernacle system of worship, this temple system of worship, was an object lesson that, yes, look, right now you're going to bleed. Right now you're going to be around death. Right now you're going to be around tears. Right now you're going to get injured. Right now you're going to experience deficiency and less than wholeness. But because God has made provision one day, you will be pronounced clean again. You will be made whole again. You will be restored. You will recover. And you will be admitted westward into God's special presence again. So, these two basic aspects of fallenness that needed to be addressed in the Old Covenant. Forgiveness from guilt and then being fixed from brokenness. These were the two big categories of the Old Testament object lesson. There was the sin and holiness laws, and then there was the clean and unclean laws. And God made provision of sacrifices for both, to meet both kinds of needs. Now we are so accustomed to hearing about how Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And hallelujah that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am so glad that there is a Savior who bled and died for me. I'm glad that at Calvary mercy there was great and grace was free. I'm glad that Jesus paid it all. I'm glad that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice to get rid of the guilt that I have for my sin. But listen, Jesus is also the Lamb of God who takes away the effects of sin upon the world. Jesus is also prefigured and foreshadowed and signified and represented by all of the appointed sacrifices for cleansing that when you finally got your strength back again, you would come and present a sacrifice and you would be pronounced clean, which means whole, vibrant, full of life, no longer deficient, no longer near injury, no longer near death, no longer near pain, no longer near blood, no longer near tears. You're fixed, you're whole, you're clean. Jesus is also prefigured by the sacrifices for cleansing. The work of Jesus is multifaceted like a diamond with many beautiful sides. And it has several dis different aspects to it. And so because we need to learn about his kingship, there were kings. And because we needed to learn about his priesthood, there were priests. And because we needed to learn about atonement, there were atoning sacrifices. And because we needed to learn about getting fixed, there were sacrifices for getting fixed. Being healed. Being made whole. But all of these things point to Jesus. All of the Old Testament scriptures are pointing us forward to and teaching about the multifaceted work of one person, one being, Jesus. 
the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away the effects of sin upon the world, who is the king, who is the priest, and so on and so forth. It's all pointing us to Jesus. It is only through Jesus that all the prefigured, foreshadowed, and represented things become realities. So what this means is that when Mary brought her sacrifice to the temple for her, her cleansing in this ritual which said, yeah, you were, you did have diminished strength, you did bleed, but through the provision here that God has made for you in this sacrifice, we recognize you as no longer bleeding, no longer deficient of strength. No longer depleted and you are whole again. When Mary went through this ritual and offered, it says in Luke 2.24, what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What this means is that her baby is he who was represented by and foreshadowed by and prefigured by those cleansing sacrifices that she brought. Now, in and of itself, that's profound. That's really, that's really wonderful, really beautiful to consider this. Your life is hard. It has some difficulties in it. There is death. There is blood. There are tears. There are injuries, there are deficiencies, there are deformities, there are disabilities, there is all kinds of ways in which you are broken, that you are hurting, that you are a victim of sin, living in a sin-cursed world. And Jesus is the sacrifice that renders you whole again. He is the basis upon which one day God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And God will stop your bleeding. And so on and so forth. Right there, that's wonderful. To think about the fact that Jesus came into this world to make all things new. So that the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Right now, we could just wrap up and I think leave here joyful. Just be like, Merry Christmas. But, but listen, I'm going to show you one more thing, which I think is, is going to augment this and make it even that much more profound, even that much more beautiful. I had Leviticus 12 read earlier in the service because that is the section of Old Testament scriptures that is alluded to when it says that Mary offered what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 12, and we look at what it says about the, the proper sacrifice that you're supposed to bring for purification after childbirth, this is what it says. If she cannot afford a lamb, if she cannot afford a lamb, Leviticus 12, 8, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. <laughs> what this means is that Mary couldn't afford a lamb. 
And Luke is telling us as much without making it explicit, the way that we sometimes try to sort of save face. If we can't afford something, sometimes we say, I'll have to think about it. Or we say, I'll talk to my wife. Or we, we say it in another way, instead of just saying, I can't afford it. And same thing, we might try to save face someone else's honor if they can't afford it by saying, you know, I mentioned it to him, but he said it's not a good time for him right now. Right? This is what Luke is doing here. He's telling us that Mary couldn't afford a lamb without putting it so bluntly. He says that she went and she offered what is written in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, what is written in the law is if she cannot afford a lamb, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, Mary was probably at this time still a teenager. Back in those days they married young. She was engaged to be married to a blue collar guy, a carpenter, from a little town called Nazareth, which might be the equivalent today maybe of a place like Pycorn or St. Lucie. A small town of no real account or significance. So imagine a, te a teenage mom from Pie Corner, St. Lucie, engaged but not yet married, giving birth to a baby boy and having to go offer a lamb at the temple for her ceremonial cleansing, but not being able to afford the lamb. But remember I told you a few moments ago, that all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament prefigured one person. Jesus. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the effects of the sin of the world. Right? Jesus is that which, or He who was prefigured and foreshadowed and signified by all the Old Testament sacrifices, including the cleansing ones. So what this means is for this young girl who couldn't afford a lamb, God provided a lamb. Just like when Abraham and Isaac were on their way up the mountain, he said, I see the firewood, but where is the ram for the sacrifice? And Abraham looked at his boy and said, the Lord will provide. And didn't the Lord provide? And didn't that prefigure and foreshadow Christ Jesus? You see, we have no lamb to bring. Either for our forgiveness, nor for our cleansing. We can't make ourselves forgiven. Neither can we make ourselves whole again. But we must be forgiven, and we must be made whole, if we are ever going to dwell with God westward in Eden, in the most holy place. If we are ever going to live in that place where it is said the dwelling place of God is with man, we must be forgiven and we must be made whole. But none of us can provide a lamb for our forgiveness and none of us can provide a lamb for our cleansing. None of us can make ourselves forgiven. None of us can make ourselves whole. So where will we find a lamb? Well, to this young lady who couldn't afford a lamb, the Lord gave 
freely. Amen. And to any of you here today, to each and every one of you who is here today, I don't care if you can go buy all the black belly sheep in Barbados, and you've got money in your bank account for days. You cannot afford the land you need to be forgiven and to be made whole. And so you still can't afford the land you need. But come, let us reason together, God says. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. And if I could extend it a little bit to fit with our metaphor. Though you are broken, you shall be made whole. Whole again. Eat, drink, without money, without price. What's the cost of Jesus? Free. Free. Right? Jesus said, if you're hungry, come eat. If you're thirsty, come take a drink. If you need to be forgiven, come. If you need to be made whole, come. There is no cost for the land that we need. And so I, for one, am glad that there is a young lady in Scripture who couldn't afford a land, who got given one. Because I can't afford one either. And it gives me hope that one may be given me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lamb of God.